We are in uh, not 1 Timothy tonight. We're going to take a little break from that series. And we're going to jump to another epistle, though, in your New Testament, which is the epistle of 1 Peter. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3 tonight. There is a passage that has been on my mind for a while, and I figured I would preach through it again to you this evening. So 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at a few verses here. Verses 13 through 17 will be our text for tonight. But the Bible, as you know, it calls us to be disciples of itself. Those who believe in the Word, they are very much then called to be disciples, students of the Word, as they are made to follow after God. Really, you could make this, uh, we could apply a, a big sort of religious word to this, which would mean we are all called to be theologians. Now, that sounds scary because we think of theologians being the scholars in the seminaries, but really every single one of us here, every, actually, you might even say every single person who has ever lived has been a theologian. Yes, even the atheist is a theologian. Yes, he's making a very bad theological assumption, but he's still making a thought, an assertion about God nonetheless. That's really what the word means. Theology is really the study of or the interest in God. And an atheist is making a bad theological statement by declaring his disinterest in the idea of a God, but still he's making a theological statement nonetheless. Everyone who has ever lived has been a theologian, whether they realized it or not. And what the Bible calls us to is to be good theologians of the word. And we do that by studying it. We do that by reading it. Now, don't let that scare you. Because that doesn't mean that we have to know Aramaic. It doesn't mean we have to know Greek or Hebrew. I confess to you, I do not. I get to do that next summer when I take my seminary classes. I get to learn Hebrew or Greek. I haven't decided what I'm going to do yet. But I get to do that next year. (laughs) Uh, I'm not really looking forward to it, but I have to do it to pass my MDiv. Um, But regardless, I get to do that next year. But that's not a requirement of studying the Bible. You don't have to know all the original languages. You don't have to uh, have half of the New Testament uh, committed to memory to be considered a good student of the word. And in fact, I think, I think it really just simply means that you are, are, are pursuing a knowledge of God earnestly, eagerly, wholeheartedly. That's what I think it means to be a theologian. It's a lot simpler than what it kind of sounds at first. It's actually, I think, let me read a verse to you. Uh, stay in First Peter, but there's a verse in Psalm, uh, the 63rd Psalm, that I love and I go back to often. Uh, because I think it kind of describes the Christian life in terms of being a disciple. Listen to what David says in Psalm 63 verse 8. He says, My soul followeth hard after thee, and thy right hand upholdeth me. That idea of following hard, of committing himself to this Lord, even as the Lord upholds him, I think that's what it means to be a disciple. To be a theologian and a student of the word means you're following hard after this God who upholds you, who sustains you, who keeps you close in the palm of his hand. That's what it means to be a good theologian. You're pursuing a relationship with this God, this God of the word, by reading his word. And it simply means you are a student of it. 
and you're reading it, and you're forming this theology, it comes out of you. The famous American preacher, A.W. Tozer, he has that famous quote which reads, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And essentially he's saying that very thing, that our theology is the most important thing about us. What are, what are your thoughts about God's thoughts about you? Do you, do you have them? <laughs> Is he an angry God? Is he a happy God? Is he a God that's vindictive? Is he a God that's just uh, disinterested? Is he a God that's aloof, that doesn't want to be involved? Or is he a God that's personally with us? See, these are the types of thoughts that will be stirred up as you read the word. And I think you will find that he is very much a God that is interested, that is involved, that cares about us. But I think tonight... um, I don't want to spend so much time talking about being theologians because really what I want to talk about is the other calling that comes, that's sort of a fruit, that's a fruit of what we've been talking about, yes, even in our study of the pastoral epistles, which is the calling of being an apologist. See, along with being a theologian of the word, the Bible, I think, also calls us to be apologists of the word as well. Now, don't let that word scare you either. Because it sounds big and fancy and it sounds like you have to know a lot of things. But it doesn't mean apologizing for something. uh, And it doesn't mean sort of compromising or making excuses for something that you have a conviction on. In fact, um, it simply means to give a formal defense against an accusation. In fact, it wasn't until the 15th century, I believe, or even the... I wrote it down. Late 16th century. The late 16th century when the word apology was sort of shifted and morphed into the way we often think about the word apology today. Which is being sorry for something. To asking for an apology for someone. That's, it only came in, in sort of that sort of uh, usage in the late 1600s. So really... Apology in classical Greek, we might say, really in what Peter is going to talk about here, is this well-reasoned defense. A defense of the word only comes, yes, as you are a student of the word. So the theology has to be there. The following hard after God has to be there in order for you to make a well-reasoned, to make a good apology for the word of God. This is why we have our whole lives are to be centered around our God. Because what Peter talks about here is very important for us. Even, yes, as we've been talking about, as uh, Paul has been commissioning his disciple Timothy. Right? We've been talking about this idea that he is now entering into this sort of new wave of ministry in which he is defending the truth of the gospel, of the church, of the truth of the word of God itself against these attacks from false gospels that want to infiltrate the church. False ideas about who Christ is and how Christ operates, how God functions, what the gospel says. This is why he's writing to Timothy in the first place. This is the truth, he's saying. That's why he repeats that saying in, in, the, gospel, in the, the letters to Timothy. Uh, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. He's saying to Timothy, this, this right here, this is true. You can count on this. You can bank on this. He's essentially calling uh, Timothy to be an, a, pa- a pastor, but also a pastor and an apologist. 
based on the theology with which Paul has instilled in him. I think the very same thing is true for us. We don't have to know all the original languages and all these smart things. We don't have to be like Ravi Zacharias and know all of these uh, syllogisms of how to defend our faith. That's what we're going to see. I think defending your faith and being, quote, a good apologist is actually a lot simpler than we make it out to be. And I think that's exactly what Peter is doing here, especially in our text. If you're in 1 Peter, look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and look at verse... Uh, 13, or um, let's back up, let's uh, look at verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord, he writes, are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil, and who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good, but and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye, what a statement is that? Happy are you when you suffer for the sake of righteousness. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. What a verse that is. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. What an incredible passage from Peter here. You can just see Peter's passion for the gospel. He's saying it's so much better to suffer on, the, on behalf of the gospel than to uh, be ashamed of it. And then later be ashamed for evil doing. Because you didn't stand up for this truth. You didn't stand for this gospel. You didn't make, as he says, a a ready answer. Ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Here I think he's calling these Gentile Christians... To be good apologists. Be good students of the word. Then they can make a good defense of the word. And they won't be shaken as he's writing here. Shaken in times of turbulence and trouble. He's writing to this sort of unnamed church. That is actually uh, in modern day Turkey. We would know it as. And his goal I think throughout this letter. Is to encourage them. Even as we've seen here. To faithfulness under intense persecution. We know the first century was a difficult time for those first Christians. But they could persist in their faith because they knew that their hope was not in vain. It wasn't pointless. It wasn't hopeless. They had a hope that was real. They had a hope that was true. They had a hope that was something that they could truly believe in. And that's why Peter is so passionate about getting them to stand for that same truth. I think he defends, he proceeds to defend that their reason for their hope, therefore they could also defend the reason for their hope as well. He's encouraging them to know what they believe. In their heart of hearts, to know what they believe. And here, I think really we have three quick things I want to point out to you that I think that are here that sort of make up a good apologist. How do you defend your faith? Well, here are three simple things. 
Three simple things. Look at verse 15 again. Because I think here we first of all see the manner of our defense. The manner of our defense. Look at verse 15 again. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man. That asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear. Those two conditions that he puts on this charge, I think are so fascinating to me. He's charging them to always be ready to give an answer. Always have on the tip of your tongues the reason, to, uh, the reason why you believe what you believe. You do that, by the way, by being a good student of the word. When you do that, you will always have a reason. It will be on the tip of your tongues. This is why I believe what I believe. But then he adds that condition. There's two conditions, right? Meekness and fear. Really, it means gentleness and respect. It might, even if you have a different translation than what I'm reading from, it might even have those words for you already. Meekness, gentleness, fear, respect. It's really uh, something that I think should align a lot of Christians in the modern day when their faith is being attacked from a bunch of different sides. Christians are such that should not be looking for fights. We are not theological bullies or spiritual assassins that are seeking out arguments in which to insert ourselves, in which to make us look better. I think a lot of times, uh, I'm not saying anyone here, but Christians in general uh, tend to do that. We tend to go out looking for fights and we posit it as we are defending our faith. When really I think you're just being a spiritual bully. Seeing who you can rip to shreds with your awesome theological argument. That's not saying that they're not wrong. But here what he's saying is do it with meekness and fear. We aren't looking to go around and become theological mercenaries. Seeking out people that we can devour with our very fine-tuned argument of theology. We are going around giving people a reason for the hope that is in our bellies. The reason why we are so passionate about this good news. We aren't, it's, it's, I think Brother Luke mentioned that this morning in his message. That we are, we are dangerous on call. Like that old lady that he mentioned in his sermon, right? Who could rip out throats really quickly. Which, I don't know if that's true, but it sounds scary. But that's, Sort of like the Christian. That you know how to reason with someone who has an unfounded and yes, perhaps uh, illogical theological statement. But we're not going around looking to rustle that feather. We are always ready to give an answer. That doesn't mean we're going around with a megaphone shouting it to the top of our lungs. In people's faces. I don't think that's very effective. But we should always have a reason for the hope that is on the tip of our tongues. It should be right there, first on our lips. And when someone asks you, you want to know what I believe? This is what I believe. I believe that man was a sinner and that God is an even better savior. And why do I believe that? Because the Bible tells me so. It's a simple, I think, manner of our defense. The manner is one in which we are conducting ourselves in meekness and fear, gentleness and respect. This charge 
I think, doesn't mean also that we have an answer for everything. Have you ever had a really good theological question asked to you? And you try and come up with an answer and you don't know what it is? I've had that before. That's always fun. You're like, I have to say I don't know. (laughs) And I think that's a good thing to say. Christians don't have to be know-it-alls for Jesus. We can say we don't know. There are some things that God has not revealed. If someone asks you how to um, sort of diversify election and free will, you have to say you don't know. And it's not for us to know. It's not for man to decide who is in those categories. And that's not the point. The point is to give a reason for the hope. The reason for your hope is that Jesus has said it is finished. We can say that with gentleness and respect. We can say that with meekness. That's how I think we defend our faith. Because then it shines a bright light on what? If you are giving a reason for your hope, and it's not based on your logic, it's based on what? Your Savior, your God's love for you. You're not logically uh, destroying an argument. You're lovingly showing a person, another person that loves them. Enough to die their death on the cross. It can happen through a syllogism, but I don't always think it happens by uh, giving someone a, a robust argument for why you believe what you believe. Perhaps it can happen that way. But I think really this charge here, with this manner of our defense, is really getting us into having a readiness and a willingness to stand up. And to, yes, speak when necessary. But it's just like my previous job. When I used to work um, in the secular workforce, as they say, uh, I was working at a chemical company as one of their purchasing managers. And I was doing that job as a person who knew that it was God's calling on my life to be in the ministry. But what was so, um, through a long road that God brought me through, uh, he brought me to a place where I was confident and free enough to share my faith with the people in my office. I had a bunch of great conversations with a Roman Catholic uh, man who was in my office who worked with me. And I wasn't ashamed to share it. But I didn't go into the office shouting and preaching a three-point message. (laughs) Saying why your reasoning about God is false and wrong. But when I was confronted with it, you best believe that I gave him a sermon. (laughs) It was the only sermons I could give at that point, so he got all that was in me at the time. (laughs) But I think that's sort of what Peter is getting at, what Brother Luke was telling us about. We're like those those ninjas, Master Miyagi from Karate Kid. We're not just looking for fights, but we do have the truth, and we do have a reason for the hope that's in us. And when we are asked, you best believe we will share it. Because it's the first thing on our lips. I think that's the manner in which we defend our faith. But look again at verse 15. Because I think he gives here, secondly, the message of our defense. Not only the manner of it, but the message of it. He said, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear. I can tell you from personal experience that uh, when you're asked to share your faith, to go, let's say, go witnessing like door to door or whatever, 
What's the one thing that gets you nervous? It's just, what do I say? (laughs) What's the content of what I say when I knock on that door and there's a person that opens the door? (laughs) I was used, when I was young, and I was a pastor's kid, and so I thought I knew all this stuff. But when I would would go on door to door, I would honestly hope that someone wouldn't answer the door. (laughs) Because I was so nervous. What do I say? So I just sheepishly knock on the door. I probably knocked on the door really lightly so they wouldn't hear me. Oh, no one's there. Um, but what do we say? What's the message of our defense? What, what's the content of, of my argument when I'm argument of there, when I'm making this apology for the faith? I want to encourage you that just what Peter says here is exactly what you are to say. The reason, what is it? Ask you a reason of the hope that is in you. The hope that is in you. There's no secret formula. There's no special sort of message that we can share with you. I can't give you some sort of mystical language in which you can share that will automatically give people a a commitment and a conversion to Jesus. The best apology for the Christian faith is your own story of grace. The best testimony for the gospel is your testimony of the gospel in your life. It's the reason for your hope that is in you. That's why I can have a bunch of different variations. Hearing a testimony, I love it. You know, sometimes this is a very churchy thing. You know, we are like, I don't have a good testimony. Why? Because I got saved when I was three or five in Sunday school. And I've always been a Christian since then. That's a great testimony. And you're like, no, I didn't do drugs or I didn't, wasn't addicted to alcohol or whatever. Those are great testimonies. They're all good testimonies. You know why? Because we are all abject sinners in need of grace. Just like in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul writes, of whom I am chief. And we resonate with that because Paul, you know, we know Paul. He, uh, he uh, was afflicting the very church in which he later served. So we were like, yeah, you were a, a bad guy. That's you too. He doesn't make a condition on level 10 sinners and level 21 sinners. It's sinners. That's who he came to save. If you have a testimony of grace, it is a wonderful monument of grace in your life. Of God's grace. Undeserved righteousness and favor on your behalf. This is what he has come to share. This is what we are made to share. It's the reason for our hope. We don't have to be ashamed of sharing our testimony. Because it's not a good one. Every testimony is a good testimony. Every story of grace is a miracle of grace. Because we are all sinners that needed actually and deserved hell. And we have been made to be escape that destiny. Why? Because Jesus has taken that destiny for us. He has taken that hell on our behalf. He has taken that death that we deserved. That's everyone's testimony. Whether you were saved at 5 or 25 or 55. Every single person's uh, remarkable testimony, I think, could be summed up in the sinner's prayer from Luke chapter 18. When the publican is praying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's our prayer. 
That's our testimony. That's our reason for our hope. If you have a testimony of salvation, you have the best evidence in your life for your hope. Already. In your heart. And we all, I think, have a unique story to share. Just like I was saying, each testimony is sort of a a different side of a prism. In which we see a different refraction of light. Of God's grace. It's slightly different, but it's the same prism. It's the same message. It's the same wonderful news. You don't have to be especially gifted at speaking. Or have any sort of special skills to be an apologist. I think right here is what he's saying. You give a reason for the hope that's in you. We scare ourselves, I think, into thinking that we have to know it all and know it all perfectly before we can share or defend this faith. But I think the only thing you need to share the gospel is an intense passion for the gospel. Let me read you what James Buchanan, an old writer and preacher said. He said, the best preparation for the study of the gospel is neither great intellectual ability nor much scholastic learning. But a conscience impressed with a sense of our actual condition as sinners in the sight of God. A deep conviction of sin is the one thing needful in such an inquiry. It's knowing yourself a great sinner and God an even greater Savior. That's the best condition you can have when approaching uh, sharing your faith. The best preachers of grace are the ones who know that they need it themselves. You know why I'm so passionate about sharing the gospel of grace? Because I know that I need grace. (laughs) Intensely, in my own heart. That I would not be where God has placed me without it. That I'd be sitting on my behind, not doing anything for God apart from this gospel of grace in my life. I don't want to share it. I want to give everyone the reason for the hope that's in me. Because it's a hope that's bursting in my soul, in my heart. Have you ever felt convicted for sin? Have you ever felt guilty because of something that you did that you knew was wrong? And then have you ever felt the relief and the sweet peace that follows God's forgiveness after you confessed and repented of that sin? You don't have to raise your hands. It's rhetorical. But if you felt those things, then guess what? You make a good apologist. You make a good person to defend your faith. We will not be passionate about defending the truth of the gospel until we become keenly aware of our desperate need for the gospel. Until this hope that is in our souls doesn't become our only hope, we will not have the passion to share this hope. That's why it's for me, you know, I've been reading some old writers and they've been saying the same thing. Even back in the late 17 and late 1800s, they were talking to young preachers then. That this message, young guys, is for you. And I'm reading it and it's speaking to me. This message is for me. That unless I see myself as the chief of sinners, I have no business sharing the gospel for sinners. Unless I see myself as having an intense share, as Charles Wesley writes in that great hymn, And Can It Be? Unless I know that I have myself an interest in the Savior's blood. 
I have no business sharing the good news of the Savior's blood shed for sinners. Until we see our need of the gospel, we won't be uh, passionate about sharing it. Again, it goes back to that's why we have to be students of the word. Being a theologian really means that. Putting yourself at God's feet and letting him show you how awesome he is. How desperate you are and how great of a deliverer he is. This is, I think, the message of our defense. But let me hasten thirdly. We have the manner of our defense. The message, and let, let's look again, verse 3, or excuse me, uh, number 3, in verse 15, the magnitude of our defense. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I think some have mistakenly viewed this gospel message as we might say sort of like the entry point or the gate into religion or faith. That's why whenever you hear a great gospel sermon, so to speak, it's usually at an evangelistic sort of setting. At a setting when you know there are a lot of lost people that do not or have not heard about Jesus. And that's very well and good. But the gospel, this is not original with me, but the gospel is not only the, the diving board into the waters of faith, it's the entire pool. That's a really silly picture, but imagine it with me. If the gospel is the diving board, then the pool, the water that fills up that pool is something else. It's something other, so we have to keep diving into some other deep water of religion. But the writer of that quote is basically saying that the gospel is the entire thing. That this gospel which Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and then risen on the third day. This is the entire thing. This is our message. This is all that we have to say. We don't share something else with them after the fact. This is what we keep on sharing each and every single day. We never graduate from needing this good news. We never reach a level in which the gospel isn't applicable, which isn't uh, indeed very effectual to where we are. We need the gospel every day. That's that colloquial Martin Luther quote. That we need the gospel every day because we forget it every day. We forget the truths of it, where we forget to live in light of them. This is the great magnitude of our defense, that we are always preaching the gospel to ourselves. Why? Because we know we are the chief of sinners. And we are told that Jesus is a great Savior. We can share that glorious news. Following hard after Jesus. Following hard after God, as the psalmist said again in Psalm 63, it means clinging and cleaving and sticking close to Him. Why? Because He knows that last phrase of that verse is so important. He can follow hard after the Lord. Why? Because He knows that His hand upholds Him. This is our message. This is our, the magnitude of our defense. Realizing we can never share anything else other than Jesus. This is all that we have to share. 
You can give people good morals, but those will soon fade. You can teach them good etiquette, but that will only get them so far. What lost people need is the gospel. The message of Jesus which saves sinners. And the only way to become a good apologist for Jesus is to never move on from Jesus. There's no other better subject to study. The best way to defend the gospel is to keep studying the gospel. My mom used to be a bank teller. She used to work uh, many years ago as a person who would look at all the bills and all that kind of stuff as you came in and made your deposits or whatever. You know, this is a very known thing in banks and federal agents. Uh, The way that they spot counterfeits, you know what it is? They study the real thing. They don't handle counterfeit money and then handle real money. They only handle the real thing. Why? So then when they see a counterfeit, they know instantly this is not the real thing. It's a fake. Because they can, they've handled the real thing. It has a different feeling, a different smell, a different texture, a different way it looks, a different way it reflects the light. A different way it looks under different lights. They know the real thing so well that it doesn't take them very long to, spout, to spot a counterfeit bill. That's what we are called to. We are called to study the real thing. To study this real Jesus who came and lived and died for us. The best way to identify false religion is not by studying false religions, but by continually immersing ourselves in God's religion. It's the religion of faith. That's how we become a good apologist. By studying the real thing. By reading the real thing. Of what God has done for us. (laughs) I think it's good to know. What some of the other religions. Denominations. Cults. Say. But I've seen people. That get caught up so much. With learning what the other people say. And believe and preach. That they end up becoming immersed in themselves. They end up questioning their own faith. And they end up like we've already looked at. In 1 Timothy chapter 1. Becoming shipwrecked in their faith. They got too inundated. With these other things. But it's absolutely vital. To know what you believe. And you do that. By studying the real thing. There's a thing, or there's a, a phrase that I've said in different contexts, and it might alarm you at first. But I would say that church kids are some of the most dangerous kids that come to church. And I would even, I would say, it, make it personal to me that pastor's kids are the most dangerous. And I can say that honestly because I am one. I'm a pastor's kid and a grandfather's pastor's kid. I'm a GPK like Noah was this morning. <laughs> and I say that because... I know what it's like to be in a church service every single day. I was born in church, I like to say. Not really, but I was, I've always been in church. It's in my DNA. Sunday school is just part of who I am. It's not really a question of what we're doing on Sunday. We're going to church because it's all I've ever known. Grew up and went to my grandfather's church, and then I went to my dad's church. <laughs> and now I have my own church. Um, but I, all of that... 
I, uh, growing up in it, I, I, I can firsthand tell you how easy it is to uh, become like that old familiar phrase, that familiarity breeds contempt. That you're around it so much that you don't really think that it speaks to you, that it applies to you, that this message is yours, that it means something to you. I made a profession of faith at the age of five, but I always will say that I was not saved at five. I was saved at 16. When I was brought to my knees knowing what kind of sinner I was and what kind of savior I had and the abject rebellion I was living in. I knew the Bible. I knew all of the parables. I even preached several times before I got saved. That's how well I could fake it. But the gospel won't mean anything unto you until you know that you desperately need the gospel. You won't know what you believe until you really know what you believe. Until you realize that this belief is all that you have. It's so easy to be in church a lot and not really know why. To just be in church because it's the thing that you do. For a kid, it's because your parents made you. Or maybe you're older and it's just because you've always done it. It's so easy to treat church like a social club. Where your friends are. Where your best mates are. I did that. I was homeschooled. All my best friends were in church. They were good Christian kids to hang around. And I've seen some of my friends grow up in church and just totally reject Christianity when they enter adulthood. Why? Because the truth was never in them. It was what their mom and dad told them to believe. It was faith by heritage. Faith by heritage never lasts. Faith has to be yours. The reason, as he says, for your hope that is in you. You can't share what you don't have. You can't share a message that's not yours. That's why when we preach to whoever is in the church service, what do we preach? We preach the gospel. Why? Because the church kid who's been here their whole life, they need to know that they are a sinner, but they have a savior. And the person who's coming off the street that just stumbled in here by accident, they need to know the same thing. Because they will never share that message unless they know that that message is theirs. I have, I'm not saying I've accomplished or figured out anything, but I've come to this realization that this is the only message I'm called to preach. So I might die preaching this message. That the gospel is the only apology that we have. It's the only defense that we have. For the reason of the hope that's in us, it's the gospel. It's Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That's my testimony. It's yours too. That God be merciful to me, a Savior. And you know what? He is every single time. He's always merciful to those penitent sinners. It's vital to know what you believe. Keeps you from drifting. Allows you to share your faith. It's vital to keep pressing in to this gospel. To keep never uh, moving away from this Jesus. And the wonderful thing is, you will never 
reach the bottom of that uh, pursuit into Jesus. You will never find the end of it. Following hard after Jesus never has a finish line. It never has a point into which you can say, look, I've arrived, I've achieved spiritual maturity. (laughs) It's a never-ending pursuit. It's a never-ending pursuit of Jesus. Because there's always something in which we can find more of Jesus to discover. Let me read you some verses. These are so good. I have a a few more minutes. They're supposed to get in here at 8. So we'll see what happens. (laughs) Uh, Look at Job. Let me find it really quick. I love these verses in Job. Job chapter 5. Well, you can write them down. I'll read them. Uh, Job chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. He writes, I would seek unto God, and, and unto God would I commit my cause, who doeth great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. That's the God that you have. He does unsearchable, marvelous things that cannot even be numbered. David says something similar in the Psalms. Psalm 40, verse 5. David writes this. Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which, thou, which are, to, uh, are to usward. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. <laughs> He's losing ways to describe how numberless they are. I can't even give you, God, all the ways that you've worked in my life. There will be always something more to discover of this Jesus. And even the verses that we were near this morning. Look at Ephesians. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it, but you can if you want. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul is writing, or verse 17, that in Christ... May dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height. And to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. And to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus Throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. That's our pursuit. Following hard after God means following hard into knowing the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of that's love. And you'll never be able to reach those things. (laughs) It's sort of a self-defeating reality. (laughs) You'll never be able to reach the end of a study of God's love. But that's also the joyous thing too. You'll never be able to reach an end of the study of God's love. You'll always find as he says there. That this love is exceedingly abundantly above. (laughs) He's running out of words in the human language to describe. How beyond this knowledge of God's love is. Beyond human comprehension. There will always be more of Jesus to discover. We will never run out of new things to know about God and about Jesus and about His Spirit and about that Spirit which preaches the love to us in our hearts. This is what the Word says to us. This is the message that we are called to preach. This is how to be a good apologist. Knowing the Gospel, knowing the Gospel is for you and never moving away from it. Let us pray.